Sweetheart of Swing. Hey, you're listening to Stay Tuned, the show for animation lovers, recorded live on YouTube and also streaming on Patreon. Coming to you from Austin, Texas, I'm your host, Phil Maki. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Tonight, Stay Tuned welcomes writer Peter Gaffney to the show. All that, and you'll have a chance to share your thoughts, questions, and opinions with me for a live Q&A after the show. My special guest tonight has written for MTV's Eon Flux, Nickelodeon's Rugrats, and Disney's Legend of Tarzan series. In addition to numerous other credits, he also co-created the series, Ah! Real Monsters! Peter Gaffney is here to talk about what goes into writing for cartoons in just a few moments. But first, this. Gaffney, welcome to Stay Tuned. Well, thank you, Phil. I'm glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, Peter, you're a writer and producer of animated programming, and you've been involved in some of the most beloved TV shows from the Nicktoons golden era, as I like to refer to it. (laughs) So what was it like being on the ground floor? Like, did you have any inklings of how well it was going to be received back then? No, in fact, quite the opposite. I've been working for MTV in New York, and uh, I decided to move out to California and try my luck out here. I didn't really have any uh, leads on jobs or anything like that. I came out here, and the day after I arrived, I got a call from a total stranger who identified himself as Paul Germain, the creator of Rugrats. He uh, had gotten my name from somebody at MTV. I'd never worked in animation at all, or kids programming, anything like that. And uh, he, he was just looking for writers. And he told me a little bit about the show. He said the main characters are babies. And my immediate thought was, which I did say to him, was no self-respecting kid is going to watch a show about babies. <laughs> and I was sure it was going to be a huge disaster. Right, you know. Right. <laughs> but I was happy for the work, and I wrote a couple of scripts for that first season, and then Paul brought me on as a story editor and staff writer. And, you know, I haven't looked back. My whole career just basically has stemmed from that one phone call. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's major, you know, looking back on that. 
Yeah. You said that out loud to him, or you didn't say that out loud? No, I did not say that. You did not say that. Okay. I thought that. I thought, you know, this is a stupid idea. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. And, you know, I'm sure equally, though, there are a ton of ideas that people out there have said great things about that turned out to be stupid. So, I mean, it could go either way. Yeah, you never know. You never know what's going to hit. And in the case of Rugrats, a lot of things combined to make that such a wonderful show. You know, the art was really new with the time. It, it looked so different from anything else on. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The writing was spectacular, I have to say, in all modesty. We had a writing staff, which a lot of cartoon shows I've worked on have not had a staff. They've just had, like, me sitting there in a room, and I'm, like, contacting freelancers. But we actually had the luxury, because Nickelodeon had never done animation before. They kind of let us do what we wanted to do. And one of the things that Paul wanted was to have, like, a room, you know, like a writer's room, like you'd have on a sitcom. And so we got in a bunch of people, and it was a very collaborative atmosphere. And I think that really helped us. And, um, you know, and it also helped that Nickelodeon just gave us free reign to do the show we wanted to do. So, um, you know, it was the first thing I did in animation. And in many respects, it was the best. I mean, it's certainly the most popular, but it was uh, it was one of the best experiences and, and some of the work I'm proudest of, frankly. Oh, great. And you mentioned the art style. And so that was, of course, Klasky Chupo. So what can you tell me about working with that studio? Because you've done a few projects with them, haven't you? I did Rugrats and I co-created Our Real Monsters. And I didn't really work on the show. I co-created it and then the show went and I didn't end up actually working on it except for writing a couple of scripts. But yeah, I worked with Klasky Shupo mainly, and I developed some other stuff for them that didn't go anywhere. But that work was all basically between like 1990 and maybe 1993 or 94. It was a very short period of time. Like I said, it was a great experience. It was a a really great bunch of people. It was great working with Nickelodeon. I mean, there, there were definitely all sorts of problems along the way and personality conflicts and things like that. But in terms of like an ideal working environment, certainly based on what, I, what I've experienced since then, that was it. That was just the best. Oh, that's awesome. And do you think it had something to do with just, you know, that budding time in Nickelodeon's cartoon history? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, and it was also, you know, Klasky Shupo was just sort of getting going. I mean, they had done they had done The Simpsons, but I think Rugrats may have been their first original creative endeavor. And so, yeah, they were just getting off the ground. Everybody was, uh, you know, was just getting a chance to, to do this thing for the first time. Um, and I think that's what made it exciting. It, it, it didn't feel like, I mean, sometimes you go to somewhere like Disney and you feel like you're putting out a product. They've got a very uh, regulated process by which the thing is done. And um, not always the case at Disney. I mean, working for Disney was great too, but that time at Nickelodeon was special. Awesome. Yeah, you just mentioned that, you know, you co-created, ah, Real Monsters. Uh, (laughs) So I'm really curious, what conversation led to the creation of that show? It wasn't even a conversation. Gabor Shupo came to me with, he had two drawings that he had done for his children. And one of those drawings was of the four monsters from All Real Monsters. Okay. And he also had a drawing for something called Speedo Snail, which we, I, we, I also tried to develop. But All Real Monsters, the characters of uh, Oblina and Ickus and Crumb, um, Crum, yeah. and I can't remember who the other one was in, the, in that picture, you know, they were just so cool. And I just ran with that and created a show out of it. Okay, you know, so for about five dollars, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 say that again. For about five dollars, they paid me. But... Oh, right. <laughs> 
Well, and, and so that's interesting. You said you weren't that involved because, you know, I noticed you did have your name on a few of the writing credits. I think I only wrote two episodes. I, I wrote the pilot and I wrote a Bible and they took it to Nickelodeon. And I don't know if I was there for the pitch or whatever, but it was, you know, as always, it's a long process. And in the meantime, Rugrats finished up and I left Klasky Shupo. So I was out there on my own when the show finally got picked up. And for one reason or another, I didn't actually work on the show. I think I had moved on to Disney at that point. Ah, okay. So so it didn't really matter when writers for that show were coming up with, you know, major changes for those characters because you kind of had let it go anyway. Yeah, I had. You know, and it was a very collaborative pro. You know, when I, I, I act like maybe I said like that I created it myself. You know, I started the ball rolling, but it was really a collaborative process with a bunch of people like Chuck Swenson and Gabor. So by the time we actually pitched it to Nickelodeon, it was, you know, there were a lot of people who had put input into it. And and frankly, the art is such a huge part of what kind of made that show great. Oh, so of I'm course, not, yes. I'm not, certainly, it's not taking, you know, sole credit by any means. No, no, no. Yeah, the art is absolutely a major character of that series. I've said this for years now, and please feel free to take this idea and run with it if you can, because at this point, I just want to see it happen. But Real Monsters in a stop-motion full-length feature directed by Tim Burton. <laughs> wow, yeah, that would be awesome. Doesn't that sound like it was already a thing? That yeah, like- yeah, it does. I mean, that's the only thing about it is when we did Our Real Monsters, it felt like a really fresh idea. Right. And now there's been so many things with, like, monsters and with that whole kind of world. Oh, um, yeah, from Pixar. You know, you it, it yeah. feels like old hat now, but, you know, I mean, but that's good. I mean, I, I better to have done that before everything else than after everything else. So Yeah, that's <laughs> true that's true but yeah i think it's very important to note that your series there came before any of the pixar stuff yeah so you've bounced between children's programming and more adult shows like daria and beavis and butthead which audience do you prefer writing for well you know it's funny because my first real writing job was for national lampoon and then i went to mtv and then I went to kids programming from shows like Our Real Monsters and Rugrats and a lot of the stuff I did at Disney was like for 6 to 11. And then I started doing stuff for even younger kids, for like preschool audiences. So I kind of feel like, you know, like I'm, I'm working my way down toward the fetus channel. But um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's certainly not my intent. My, I love writing for 6 to 11 year olds, I think. You know, it, it, it's sort of the higher end of that. You know, like the ideal show I would do would be for like 10 to 12 year olds i think okay be that as it may i really don't necessarily think about the audience that much i want to do something that is fun to do and is funny sure and so you know i've, I've done stuff like eon flux i don't know if you've seen that oh yeah um, i i own, so. own the whole collection of that i love that show <laughs> love it so that's like a whole different you know a whole different genre and world and audience and yeah, uh, absolutely and i've i've enjoyed pretty much all you know except for the stuff for really little kids which is very difficult and is hard to make funny and they often have educational consultants who want no conflict at all in the stories if they even want stories at all but other than that you know everything i've done has been fun you know regardless of the audience no that's actually really good to hear because my thought would be that you would get stuck in a rut in one genre and then try to get out of it and not be able to or something it's, like that. you know it's it's that's definitely a danger and I, i've certainly fallen into that i've gotten into uh, especially when I started writing for preschool audiences, you kind of get stuck and more and more preschool stuff comes at 
at you and you're not really happy doing it, but you know, you need the work. So you take what's available and you, and it, it, it's very easy to get stuck in a, in a role like that. Sure. You've written for The Simpsons, which you mentioned earlier, and that seems like it would be some sort of rite of passage for animation. But even more noteworthy to me is that you wrote one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. Did you have free reign on what films you were allowed to parody? You know, that was one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. Because, you know, working with those Simpsons guys, it's like they're the funniest guys in the world. Basically, Al Jean, who's an old friend of mine, came to me and said, do you want to write an episode? I said, sure, of course I do. So he pulled me in. He said, I don't know if I'd give him ideas or not, like I said. But in any case, he says, well, you know, forget these ideas. We want you to do one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. And I said, great. And they just stuck me in a room with like five of their writers for a week. And um, (laughs) I can't remember what they had to begin with. I think they may have already had the germ of the idea, like we're going to parody the blob and whatnot. Yeah. But we we spent a week, you know, watching movies. They would like say, oh, get us a copy of blah, blah. In. And um, <laughs> it was the most fun. I mean, it was just like, so I just hung out with these guys. You know, over the course of the week, we banged out the plot of the episode. And I, I took it off and, and wrote a script, gave it back to them after three weeks or a month or something like that. And then they spent proceeded to spend another like year and a half rewriting it. So, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's so hard to tell because it takes so long in animation for anything to get to the screen. But, you know, but they basically they've got such a luxury of time on that show in particular. The other episode I did, Homer Scissorhands, about Homer as a hairdresser. Yeah, that was they were rewriting that. I don't know for how long. I mean, it was it, it felt like it was like three years before it actually got on the air. So, you know, I, I can't take very much credit for what's on the screen in either of my Simpsons episodes. But the the experience of doing it was a blast comedy show you would you would want it to be a fun thing yeah you know um (laughs) it was and it's really you know i've i've never been that interested in working on sitcoms because i've always heard that the atmosphere in some of those sitcoms rooms can be you know really brutal and um competitive and everything but with the simpsons They've been doing it for so long with pretty much the same guys. It's not like you've got people in the room that are afraid that they're going to be fired if they don't come up with a good joke that week. Right. So it's it's a pretty relaxed atmosphere. They put in a lot of hours. They're there from like 10 in the morning to like sometimes 9 or 10 at night. But um, I mean, they've earned it. They've earned their stripes at this point, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have no idea how they continue to come up with ideas for that show. I mean, after like, you know, 5,700 episodes or however many it is. I mean, it is like 500, right? Or, or a thousand. It's, I don't know how many they've done, but yeah, it's, it's so there. many. I don't know how they can come up with fresh ideas because after, you know, after three seasons of Rugrats, I couldn't come up with a, an idea for that show to save my life. You know, so <laughs> I'm, I, I, my hats are off to those guys. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible, I mean, it's a landmark achievement. They just passed up Gunsmoke for the most episodes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it, that's it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to Eon Flux that you mentioned before, such an interesting and bizarre show. Was it equally as bizarre to write for it? Yeah, that was the strangest experience I've ever had. Um, because because Peter Chung, the creator of that show, yeah. is he's way out there. He's as out there as you'd expect him to be. Yeah. And not only that, but he brought in the strangest group of writers to work on that show. He'd meet some guy that had interviewed him 
for like some weekly arts newspaper in Wisconsin. He said, this guy should write a script. And so he brought in these guys and they were all brilliant, but they had never worked in television before. They had no idea of story. They were just, you know, they were as, as out there as he was. This stuff would come in and it was like this strange, amor- they would call it a script, it'd be this strange amorphous thing. And we were under a huge schedule crunch for some reason. And so what generally happened is like on a Tuesday morning, a Monday night or a Tuesday morning, we'd get a first draft script from one of these writers who had never written television before. And Peter and Jaffet Asher, the uh, executive producer, and myself would have this script for two days. So we would like sit in Peter's apartment. So sometimes we'd be we'd be down to the wire. We had to get the script out by like Thursday. I think it was back in the days when you you had to FedEx the script to right. MTV in New York right. on Thursday at five o'clock or maybe six o'clock if you you could find a late drop off place. And so we would have like two days to somehow turn this script into something that was you know coherent and it was such we were under such time pressure it was crazy we'd we'd be in different rooms working on different acts of the script hoping they would all come together you know when we had to send them out to call it coherent is is a little kind because yes it it, it is it is i mean because i don't mean any any disrespect scripts they were just you know it was i mean it was so much fun to do you know frankly the reason i worked on that show was that mtv brought me in there to ride herd on these two crazy men jaffet and Peter Chung. And of course, you know, as soon as you get involved with it, you're on the side of the creative people, you know? So I didn't do a very good job of being like the conscience of MTV, you know, try to rein these guys in. (laughs) So you were like the the Dana Scully of of the group, like you were brought in to debunk everything. And by the end, yeah, exactly. I was supposed to be be the voice of reason, but (laughs) you know, I quickly went over to the other side of, you know, like joining Kurtz out in the jungle kind of thing. (laughs) Well, because it's essentially, it's like modern Dadaism or surrealism, or it's, I mean, it's such an interesting experiment. And a lot of the stuff from liquid television, that block of programming on MTV, a lot of that stuff was just so out there but I mean I I watched that stuff when I was 13 and so for me that was really good fertilizer for my brain yeah amazing stuff I think you switched over to Disney writing for a company that has properties based on established properties. Does that get really restrictive or do you find that to be a lot more freeing because you Well, have... you know, the first thing I did for them was basically an original show. It was it was based on a video game called Nightmare Ned and uh, Yeah, oh, I remember that. It was uh that was a very strange experience because at the time Disney had just bought ABC and they didn't have a standards and practices department. And so, you know, that was like almost the most out of control. You know, you'd think like working for Disney, it would be so controlled. But that was one of the most out of control things I'd ever worked on to the point where I was thinking, wait, wait a second, guys, you're going too far on this. This is a kid's show. (laughs) You can't do this. Yeah. You're expecting someone to say, no, you can't do that. But there was no one there. And Michael Eisner, who was running Disney at the time, was a big fan of the show as it was being developed. And he just let us do whatever we wanted and some of this stuff was just like you know I, like I said I was in the position of going wait a second you can't do this in a kid's show you know <laughs> but there, but I couldn't stop them either 
Can you give like, so, an example? Like, what what kind of thing are we talking about here? Just like sexual innuendo and stuff like that. I oh. mean, stuff that even made me like a little queasy sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe they're letting this go. This is crazy. ABC eventually had a standards and practices department, and they looked at this show, which was by that time almost done, and they said, we can't air any of these. <laughs> and I think I we had like 10 episodes, and Eisner like insisted on, okay, we you've got to air seven of them at least. And I think they aired seven of them or whatever. It was kind of a big disaster. But I mean, you know, it was fun to work on. Later stuff that I've done for Disney has been much more like what you'd expect, you know, and I ended up working on shows like The Adventures of Tarzan and stuff like that, yeah. which was very kind of by the books and not anything that I, I'm proud of. I've probably never seen most of the, the stuff I've, I worked on there. <laughs> Really? But, you know, it was fun. They they always have really good people, both on the art side and on the writing side. It's always a highly professional place to work. And frankly, the stuff that comes out is very, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's good. But it's very, it's very professional. You know like, what to you expect know, you, from you don't, it. You, you don't feel like you're, you're putting out crap. You feel right. like you're putting out, it's a very high quality product for what it is. But would you argue though that that in turn kind of limits the creativity that creates some amazing stuff? Yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah, you don't get anything amazing. Right. You get something that's like, it's very workmanlike and, you know, does the job. Yeah. But it's not Eon Flux, you know, it's, it's no. never going to be. It's not Eon Flux, it's not the Brothers Grunt, it's not... Uh, no. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned about the standards and practices thing. I remember being a teenager and watching Rocco's Modern Life and thinking, like, how are they getting away with some of this writing? It just amazed me back then. And then it happens again now. You got newer shows now, like Adventure Time, and I watch that and think the same thing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, now it's so strange what development, the evolution of animation. I mean, now we're, we're in this new golden age where there are so many outlets and again, all this kind of weird way out there kind of stuff is kind of flourishing because everyone's trying to do something that's exciting and different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're trying to push it again. Yeah. They're, and they're... It, it is kind of exciting. Although, you know, no matter what happens, like so you mentioned Adventure Time. And as soon as Adventure Time comes out, then everybody wants to copy that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a little sad that that's what happens. But yeah. it's like... It takes one studio to take a risk, and then everybody else is like, oh. That's yeah, a let's take a risk like they did. Exactly <laughs> yeah. the same risk. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, th there's a few gems that I feel like, like modern gems that have gotten kind of overlooked, but they were doing things differently, and then they kind of got bypassed. And two of those, one of them would be um, the Misadventures of Flapjack. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I never did, no. Very, very artistically strange, and I, I think you'd probably like it if you, you know, liked the other stuff that you were mentioning before. And then the other one was um, Challenge. That was another weird one. I didn't see that either. Yeah, those are both Cartoon Network shows, but you could tell those guys were doing something that was like, let's push it a bit. Let's see what we can mm -hmm. do. But like and, and Cartoon Network has done a lot of stuff like that. And it's so hard to tell whether, you know, just because something is good doesn't mean that people are going to like it when it comes out. You know, maybe it comes out a little bit too soon for people to really appreciate. Or, yeah. And just because something's way out there doesn't mean that it's good. So, uh, but it's all about taking chances and realizing 
that a lot of stuff is going to fail. Even good stuff is going to fail. Yeah, that's true. Just because of time slots or yeah, I, I was talking with another... or it just gets lost. There's so much stuff out there these yeah. days. Yeah, unless somebody notices it, how do you even know it's there? You that's know, true. And who, you know, who knows what Amazon is putting out? Because you know, yeah. unless you happen to hear about it, unless you're in the business, you're never going to see it. For the I mean, you know, unless it's a hit. Exactly. Did you know that they put out uh, a new Rocky and Bullwinkle? Um, I did know that because I worked with Amazon, but I haven't seen it yet. It's good, but I mean, if you grew up with the original, there's definitely some there's some diversions, but. I think they did a good job with it, actually. The other thing you were just saying about what can cause a show not to succeed, there's also, if toys don't sell, then the show dies. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, um, it's all a commercial enterprise, you know, lest we forget. You know, I gotta say, you can get bitter about that, but, you know, these people are paying to make the show. The show's not gonna happen unless somebody is paying to make it happen, and they're not gonna pay to make it happen unless they're hoping to make money from it somehow. So... You know, I don't know. I don't know what you can do, but yeah. Do you have like a dream project that you haven't worked on yet? That just an idea that you've been sitting on or a show that already nothing, exists? Nothing I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm pitching a bunch of ideas right now. And some of them are my, my dream ideas, but it doesn't really mean anything because the stuff that I've done that I'm proudest of is not necessarily stuff that I've come up with. It's stuff like Rugrats, things where I've been lucky enough to happen upon a project that was great with great people working on it. And stuff where I've come up with ideas hasn't necessarily worked out the way I I wanted it to work out. So um, television is always going to be a completely collaborative process. And if I want to do my dream project, I'm going to have to write a novel or do a comic book or something because it's not going to go from my head and then appear on the screen the way I want to see it. So Well, fair enough. And to tie into that, I happen to do a little bit of digging and discover the the Adventures of Tiger the Cat on Facebook, which is a <laughs> which is a series of images based on your own two cats, Tiger and Rally, right? Yeah. And as a fellow cat owner, I have to say it is very relatable. Well, some of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you say that. And you're the first person who's ever mentioned that, you know, that I haven't mentioned it to first. <laughs> Do you have any plans to expand that concept? You know, we haven't. You know, my wife and I created that, and um, she did the art, and I, uh, we, we both came up with the jokes for it. And we, it sort of ran its course in our mind. It was so much fun to do because, again, we, you know, we had total freedom. Didn't have to worry about pleasing anybody. Right. But you ended it on such a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, I can't even remember how we ended it. We didn't intend to end it. We just stopped doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, that's how it comes off. You were dealing, you, were, you started to get into like some serious uh, commentary on drug issues. And then it oh, just. Oh, yeah, because yeah, Raleigh became a drug addict. Right. Yeah, I forgot about that. But that's yeah. where it stops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should probably go back and at least get him clean and sober. Or at least write something that's like a little paragraph that says, yeah. you know. <laughs> In, in June of 2009, Raleigh no, decided I, to check himself in. <laughs> I've got to let you know that Raleigh and Tiger are doing just fine now. They, oh, good. They've got, their, they've got their lives together and they're asleep on the bed. That's fantastic. I uh, <laughs> I was wondering how they were doing, actually, when I was reading it. I'm like, I hope these two cats are still, you know, with him and everything. And 
<laughs> I've considered writing something about my own cats, but I've just done some little sketches here and there. But they are really fantastic sources of inspiration, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Animals in general. Yeah, I started, you know, I started doing this voice for Tiger. And that's how it was sort of the genesis of it. I developed this voice for Tiger to talk in, which was it was kind of based on the voice that my friend, the late Kevin Curran, who was a Simpsons writer, he did for his dog, Sporty, years ago. And, I, and that sort of inspired me to start doing this voice. And then, and out of that came Tiger's personality and, and Raleigh's too. Stranger concepts have happened, you know? You can, yeah. <laughs> you've worked on a show about babies, for crying out loud. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. Got, and there have been plenty of shows about cats. There have been. <laughs> um, what are you working on right now? Anything cool that people can look for if they want to discover your current work? Well, the thing that's going to be coming up soon, it's 2019, and I'm not sure when, it's a show called Bug Diaries, and it's aimed at four to seven-year-olds. I, I didn't create it. I was actually brought in after the show started, but I, I wrote a few episodes, and I story edited it for a little bit, and it's it's a very cute show. It's based on these three children's books, uh, little kids' books called Diary of a Fly, Diary of a Spider, and Diary of a Worm. Oh, and fun. So these, these guys are friends, and it's um, it's an Amazon show, uh, and I, I think it's going to be really good. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I've seen animatics, and it's it, it looks like it's actually going to be pretty funny. Well, that's great. It's nice to hear that, you know, Amazon's putting out some quality content. Yeah, well, I'm hoping. I think, you know, and, and from what I've heard, I think they got a great team of people. They had a great studio called Lighthouse in Dublin or outside Dublin that did the animation and they brought a lot to it. And so and, awesome. and I actually I actually think it's going to be pretty good. So um, I'm kind of excited about it. Well, that's awesome. So there has been a revival. Uh, I mean, Rugrats had several re re uh, revivals, and uh, there's been a, a revival of Hey Arnold, and then coming up soon, there's going to be a, a revisit to both Invader Zim and Rocco's Modern Life. So how likely would it be to get a revival of something like Real Monsters? I don't know, but I... I... I think it would be. Uh, they should do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, do you have any say about it? You know. <laughs> do, you, do you have any say in the matter since you co-created it, or no? Is that not? Yeah, you probably not. But um, <laughs> but hopefully, I'd at least get some money out of it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, well, I mean, if that's even a distinct possibility, I will do whatever I can to make that show happen. If, if not, <laughs> excellent, that, Phil, I appreciate it. <laughs> not that I have any sway. <laughs> hey, you have as much sway as I do. Oh no, that's that's disheartening. <laughs> oh well, honestly, thank you so much, Peter, for taking some time today and you know telling all of us here about the behind-the-scenes life of an animation writer. Well, thanks for having me, Phil. It's been fun. Oh, good. Well. Uh, we look forward to seeing Bug Diaries, right? Yeah, Bug Diaries. Bug Diaries in 2019. That's awesome. And, of course, all the other shows we talked about. I'm sure there are tons of DVDs people can go and check into now because, uh, you know, there's no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, take care. All right, you too. That was the end credits theme to Rugrats, composed by Mark Mothersbaugh. He has since gone on to an illustrious career, composing for film and television after many years performing with the new wave band Devo.
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Special thanks go out to Peter Gaffney once again for joining us here on the show. Keep an eye out for Bug Diaries in 2019. And of course, you can find DVDs of Rugrats, Eon Flux, and ah, Real Monsters available from ShoutFactory.com and Amazon.com. Thanks so much to all of you listening in live on YouTube. And if you enjoyed the show and would like to listen anytime, why don't you join me over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash filmaki and become a subscriber today. Not only are there cool rewards, but you can also stream this show anytime you like, which means never missing an episode. For more fun, check out my original comics at RetailSunshine.com and you can interact with me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handles of both Retail Sunshine and Phil Maki. Also, you can keep up to date with the latest animation news by visiting this show at Facebook.com forward slash Stay Tuned Show. I've been Phil Maki, you've been a wonderful audience, and until next time, keep those eyeballs peeled, those ears open, and be sure to stay tuned. (laughs) 